Since 1972, Braun Industries has been a custom ambulance manufacturer focused on safety, quality, and innovation. Each Braun module is unique well beyond the chassis it's built on. With six ambulance models, limitless features, and all customizable options, let Braun assist you in designing the perfect custom ambulance to suit your needs. Learn more at www.braunambulances.com. Is your fire department prepared to face challenges like the turbulent economy, recruiting and retention, and funding? Level up and get the training and strategies you need on the issues that matter most at WAVE 2023. Featuring ESO Training Academy on April 11th through the 14th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. ESO, a leading provider of fire RMS and EPCR software, brings together national industry leaders, quality training, and experienced fire and EMS professionals for a unique conference experience that will inspire you to drive change within your organization and prepare for 2023's challenges. For a limited time, our listeners can use the discount code FIRETRUCK to save $100 on a full four-day conference pass. Don't miss this opportunity to learn from some of the nation's top experts in emergency services. Visit ESOWave.com to register today. That's E-S-O-W-A-V-E dot com. See you in Austin on April 11th through the 14th, 2023. This podcast is brought to you by Flex 7 from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of enforced technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash Flex 7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced Technology, only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Well, welcome to Firefighter Behavioral Health, and I am John Murphy. Um, I am going to be the dashboard operator tonight. Working with Dr. Beth Murphy on her presentation, um, or this evening's presentation, uh, freshly returned from the land of down under. We actually spent two weeks in Australia on vacation, and uh, we're all pooped out um, from the rapid, um, I don't know, what do you call it, the rapid transit from location to location scheduled by uh, our daughter, uh, making it a pretty... Um, crazy sort of vacation, but we saw a country that we've never seen before. We're certainly glad to be home. Um, in a few weeks, uh, we'll be seeing you all at uh, FDIC or GEMSCON or Women in Fire, um, April 23rd to the 29th in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, we'll be making a presentation there as well. And um, Without further ado, and hopefully Dr. Murphy is ready, are you, Dr. Murphy? Um, well, I'm as ready as I usually am. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, without further ado, I'd like to introduce to you um, Dr. Beth Murphy, psychologist and retired firefighter, talking about psychological things affecting the fire service. <laughs> Um, so, um, 
I was, I don't know why I'm always surprised when I'm, you know, having a radio show. It happens every single time, even if it's on my calendar. And I look at it and we talk about it and it's like, oh, hey, I have a radio show this month. Um, And I still manage to be surprised. So, um, so as usual, like anybody who's listened to the show or know and or knows me, um, knows that I um, will talk about things that either, um, you know, like I, it comes from my experiences or maybe from the experiences of my clients um, or, um, I don't know, or something interesting that I read. I mean, it's, it's like I get inspiration for the show pretty much all over the place, and I think about how this is relevant to the fire service. Um, it's interesting because sometimes I think something's relevant to the fire service and it, other people may be like, I don't get it. <laughs> but um, most of the time it, it's, you know, it's uh, in line. So, um, so I decided, and I've talked about this before, but I decided that I was going to talk about um, resilience and building resilience, um, which is always, you know, well, it's it's always relevant to the fire service, um, and I and I see resilience tied into the idea of mindset, which is something that I have been like really interested in for a few years now, um, and then also that mind body connection, um, which was something that I in I think in one of my earlier talks on resilience I. Um, ignored uh, or dismissed uh, the physiological aspect of resilience. Um, And the more research I've done, the more I've realized that we can't do that. Um, We have to think about our mind, our psychology, along with um, the responses in our body, because our, our body responds. We have um, an innate drive. Um, and so we have this stress response, um, and it can be triggered by an unexpected bill in the mail to um, it being, you know, in a car accident um, or, or responding to a significant accident or fire or, or anything. Um, and our body responds, and it responds in a way that is supposed to be helpful to us. Um, and in many, many instances, it is. Um, and some, uh, depending on how you view that response, um, it might not be so helpful. Um, and so that, and that's kind of like why this connects with mindset as well. Um, so I guess, you know, like if I were talking to, well, I'm, I'm talking to all of you obviously, whoever's going to listen to this. Um, But if I were presenting to an audience, I would ask you, like, what does resilience mean? Like, how would you define that? So, John, in lieu of the fact that we don't have a live audience, I'm wondering, like, how would you define resilience? I would define resilience as the ability to address issues that are affecting me 
in a uh, positive manner, expecting a positive outcome. And much of it has been based on prior experience um, dealing with issues uh, of all types and historically have had um, good outcomes as a result of that. So for an example, uh, my fire service career um, had lots of uh, issues, uh, death and trauma, dying, you know, uh, people, um, babies being born, uh, trauma. I was, uh, I was a dad. <laughs> I'm still a dad. <clears throat> For some people, that's a traumatic <laughs> experience. Um, and, you know, if the things that your children go through, that you know that the outcome is going to be positive, even though it seems to be dire at the time. Um, I'm a Vietnam vet. Um, I know that uh, I've had some combat experience that um, was fairly traumatizing, um, but based on you know, a lot of factors when I was a younger person, um, helped me be, um, I think, resilient or being somewhat able to manage the issues uh, before me uh, without suffering long-term adverse event. Um, okay. Um, I I think, like, you kind of you kind of got to uh, the the definition. Um, I I think like um, you know one one way that I've heard it put many times is it's the ability to bounce back from adversity, frustration, and misfortune. Um, and um, and I mean it's like it can be a bit more complex, um, but like in reviewing research literature on resilience, um, one of the things that researchers have all agreed on is that resilience is complex. Um, it can have a different meaning um, from person to person, within companies, within the culture, within society, um, and, and people may be more resilient at different points in their lives and less during others, and that um, they may be losing it in some aspects of their lives and not so much in others, which I think kind of um, speaks to what you mentioned, John, about um, uh, previous learning, you know, so your experiences that you've had, um, that helps to inform you in how you um, interact with the environment or the problem or the situation or whatever. So um, that makes a lot of sense. So it kind of does a disservice to resilience to break it down to something really simple um, when it is so complex. But I think that if you think of the, the, the simple definition and, and then recognize that life is complex, then it makes a lot of sense. Um, so we're not, we're not always resilient in every area, you know, and, and those are occasions where you might choose to not pursue whatever it is, or you may choose to avoid whatever it is. Um, and in many cases, that's okay. Um, so, I mean, it's like thinking about in the, in the, in all the ways that a person can possibly be resilient, it's like, 
are you more resilient than not? And um, and I think that that might be a good way to look at it. Um, another aspect um, about resilience that I I liked and I think about is, um, and I think that this is more, it's less a definition and more about the process of resilience. Um, and that is, um, it's being uh, flexible, being able to learn, and being able to adapt. Um, so we have this, you know, basic definition of this ability to bounce back from adversity, frustration, misfortune, and and then that process by which we do that. I think about like that ability of learning, being flexible, learning, and adapting, um, and so. Uh, people may be in situations where they may learn that that is a situation that they don't like or it's uncomfortable or whatever, um, and so they they have some learning that goes on. But then it's, or I'm sorry, they may be flexible in that moment. But then it's like, but did they did they really learn something from that moment? Did they learn something that they're going to carry forward? Um, and I and I would say that you know that depends. And that and that depends on your mindset, really. It's it's like, do you believe you are the type of person that can um, handle whatever comes your way? Um, do are you the kind of person that looks at stress as being um, more of a well, I don't want to say positive, but that that it will make you stronger. Um, versus that stress is going to make you sick. I mean, and so that's the basic, um, really basic premise of, of mindset is stress or a stressful situation or whatever it is. Is it going to make you sick ultimately or will it make you stronger? And that means that you, that contributes to that resilience. It means that you are being flexible and you are learning. Um, and then adapting is like what you do with that um, and that also speaks to what John said is that he believes that he is resilient from all the experiences that he's had he's learned to um, function in certain ways um, and in many ways that learning um, is adaptive and and it works um, so but it also leaves open the idea that Sometimes we learn, so we're flexible and we learn, and then um, and we adapt. But then that ad adapting down the road is not um, it, it no longer fits the environment we're in. So you know, then then it's like maybe in that situation at that time we're not resilient. So it's like, well, what can you do about that? Um, and so again, it's it comes down to it it really is about not what you experience but how you deal with it and believing that you can in in some way shape or form um so that kind of i think that that's it that's the show right there <laughs> um so anyway so this came up because um because of our trip um because i was thinking about um you know how how do you help people be more resilient? How do you help people find their resilience? 
Um, I think that everybody that goes into fire service, without a doubt, anybody looking at them, talking with them would say, yeah, that, that's a, a resilient individual. Um, but, it, you know, as a psychologist, it's like I see people, um, well, at, at their worst moments, <laughs> much like being a firefighter, <laughs> you go because somebody did something and they're not at their best. Um, but I see people when they're really struggling and they don't, they don't appear to be resilient or, or they are, but they don't see it anymore. And so I think about, well, what can we do to help them be more resilient? Um, and so I think that in order to figure out how to help the individual, it actually means looking at like all the aspects of resilience. Um, and so I think the main one is that it is a biopsychosocial and spiritual phenomenon, meaning that it's, it's biology, so it's your body reacting, it's um, psychological, and that's you know, kind of like how you feel and think about things and how you cope with it. And then social is about the people around you, the supports that you have. And spiritual um, is, you know, if you, if you are a spiritual person or you're religious or whatever, it's like how, how, does, that, um, how does that bring in supports? Um, and there are some instances where... Um, a person's spirituality, and, and I will say it's most often like the people who follow a particular religious doctrine and they're part of a particular church or something, where that sometimes gets in the way. Um, and, and it's not always, but sometimes. Um, <clears throat> so, but it's like being able to recognize that there is this aspect also and how does that fit in? Um, so, and that basically is like, I consider all that when I am doing therapy with individuals. Um, and then it is a, um, it's a transactional dynamic process uh, between the person and the environment. Um, so it's, it's not, it's not static. It's, it's changing, changing and it involves, it involves the person. Um, whether or not the person sees that or not is another story because um, sometimes people feel like they're just being, you know, batted around by fate, if you will. Um, and it's a, um, and it really is an adaptational process um, and not all adaptations are helpful. Um, most often they are, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes it creates like a sticking point or um, it creates an adaptation that may be at odds with a, an environment, which is why they, um, the researchers said that um, resilience can vary from person to person, culture to culture, place to place. Um, so in some areas you're resilient, some you aren't. Um, so it um, obviously it involves uh, confidence in your daily functioning. Um, we don't think about resilience until we're faced with 
you know, something traumatic, um, something that really makes us take pause. Um, but, you know, basically it's like a, it's an everyday thing. Um, and it's, it's how you function every day. And then we think about it more when we're faced with, with life circumstance stressors um, and, and our ability to cope with it. Um, which is kind of like, you know, coming back to like this coming from personal experience, um, that really kind of, um, this, this talk kind of came out of, you know, my own experience recently, because as John said, you know, we were out traveling and so we went to, um, we went to Australia. And uh, and I've always wanted to go to Australia, but when it came right down to it, just thinking about it, like, really made me nervous. It really scared me um, because I haven't traveled like that for a while. Um, I didn't really know what I was going to expect. And what everybody says about Australia is like, oh, you're going to go to Australia where everything wants to kill you. And, um, and I'm like, oh, great, that helps my anxiety about traveling. <laughs> um and so, of course, you know, I went, um, and then I decided to uh, go diving. So I went diving with my daughter um, at the Great Barrier Reef, which was like kind of one of those bucket list things that I had um, that was like, I talked about it, but I guess I never really thought I would do it. Um, and And I'm... I got certified, which I, you know, doing the math was probably about 30 years ago in, to dive. So I was um, certified to dive. It was just basic diving. So I think that allows you to go to like 60 feet or something like that. And then my daughter had never dove. And, um, and so obviously no certification, no experience with um, breathing through a regulator. Um, and so, uh, you know, I wasn't quite sure how she was going to be. I know how I was. When I learned to dive, I was like, um, I don't know, like almost like panic. Because um, I, I had a near, near drowning, a near drowning experience. And so it didn't bother me when I was a kid, but when I became an adult, for whatever reason, it really kicked in, and um, well, I mean, I, I know the reason, but you know, it's still. I, I like to think about it in a way like I don't really know because I don't want to analyze it that closely. Um, but I had this near drowning experience, and um, and it was because somebody else, you know, we were playing around as kids, and somebody held me under the water until I basically went unconscious. So, um, so I can't stand to have my face in water. And I really can't stand having anybody touch me while I'm in the water, um, you know, unless unless I'm expecting it. Um, but even then, it's still kind of hard for me. Um, but anyway, I um, I learned how to – I took diving classes, and during that experience, that first day, you know, you're in the pool, and – um, I would go underwater with the regulator in my mouth, but every time I took a breath, I would come up to the surface because <laughs> it's like my brain is just like, you cannot breathe underwater. 
um, even though I have this regulator in my mouth. And um, and the uh, instructor actually tried to hold me down <laughs> to keep me from going up, which, of course, you can imagine that created even more panic. And so basically I got out of the pool and I'm, I'm like, ah, I can't do this. Um, but I don't like to quit things. And so I went home and I did mental imagery. Um, and I imagined myself like breathing underwater. I could picture myself with the regulator in my mouth and breathing underwater and uh, doing somersaults and, you know, swimming and, you know, all the things that you might do underwater. And so that visualization really helped. Um, so I was able to, um, and, and I also will say at that time, I was practicing um, meditation and breathing exercises. And so um, when I would take a deep breath, that would help me calm down. So that's what I did. And so the next day when I went back, I was able to, um, go underwater and all the things I imagined I could do in it and it felt effortless effortless um, and uh, I still had a little bit of anxiety but a lot less um, and so I was able to you know really engage in it and so went on to get certified um, so the last time I dove, I was diving with my ex-husband, and I swear he was trying to kill me. He wasn't really. I will say that. He wasn't really. Um, but we were diving in conditions where he might have been suited for, but I wasn't. And, um, and my tank was falling out of the pack, and he kept trying to fix it, but I didn't know I had a problem. And any, every time he, he, like, tugged on my pack, the regulator would come out of my mouth. So you can imagine the kind of panic that that caused. Um, and then that caused my mask to fill up with water. But because that was always anxiety provoking and they made you do that in your class, like you purposely had to fill up your mask with water and then clear it. Um, and I think they also had us take our mask off and we had to find it at the bottom of the pool and put it on and clear it. And because we did that often, and it was something that really provoked anxiety in me, I always had to take a deep breath before I did it. And that deep breath really relaxed me. And then I was able to clear my mask. And so in this instance of my previous uh, dive experience, um, because I was like kind of in this panic state, when my mask filled up, as uncomfortable as it was, it was probably the best trigger I had to make me take a deep breath when I got my regulator back in my mouth and calm down and clear my mask. And when I did that, then I was a lot more in the moment and able to solve problems. So when you're in a panic, it's hard to solve problems. Um, so you lose your ability to be flexible and to learn. Um, so, so the events allowed me to, um, find some calm and, uh, and then, you know, get out of the situation, which basically meant going to the surface and getting out of the water. Um, and it was the last time I dove. <laughs> so, um, 
so it took, it took a little while to kind of get over the fact that that whole event happened. But, you know, I look back on it and realized that I had a lot of skills that came from, I mean, throughout my life um, and, I, and, and experiences that I had with the learning process in the pool that really helped me um, calm down and start thinking more rationally and, and took me out of my panic state. And so I was able to, you know, get up to the surface and out of the water. And that's basically what you want to do. Um, now, I didn't dive after that, and it wasn't so much because of that incident, and maybe a little bit because I was really pissed off at my ex-husband. Um, but uh, it was a communication issue. So anybody who dies knows that there are certain signals that you give to each other to communicate certain things, and it's like that never happened. Um, but anyway. Um, fast forward like about 30 years, I'm faced with diving again, and I and I thought, I can't, I mean I was I was a little scared. Um, you know, first off, I was a little scared about like traveling to Australia, which was like amazing. Um, but I think it was you know being faced with someplace I've never been and knowing I was going to have to be on an airplane for a long period of time and. And basically just being taken out of my comfort zone. So, yes, I was anxious um, anyway. Um, but then uh, my daughter signed us up for this cruise, or, or she talked about it. I don't think she had signed us up yet. And so when we it came down to signing up and, like, what activities are we going to do, I decided – I wanted to, I wanted to do it. I wanted to dive, and I did a um, they call it an introductory dive. So it's it's a dive that was suited for like a beginner, somebody who'd never dove before. And I figured it's been 30 years. I'm not ready to do the you know regular like I'm certified dive. And um, and I got to do it with my daughter, who like I said had never dove. Um, and so I was a little anxious about the whole process, but I figured, ah, I'm good. You know, like I, I dove before. Um, I certainly had the experience of um, being on air. I mean, I realized that having a full face mask um, that you have with the SCBA is, is a little different than, you know, having just the regulator in your mouth. But the idea of having a mask and having to, you know, breathe from a tank um, was not foreign to me and um, and did not, you know, really provoke anxiety. So we got suited up and we go down. And when I went underwater and took my first breath, I, like, I could feel like panic rising. And, and I was like, oh, no, what am I going to do with this? But I kept telling myself, you know, you, you've done this. You've been here before. You know you can do it. You know, so I had that previous experience. And, um, and, and I, knew, I knew what to do. So it's, it's kind of like people always say um, anytime you do an activity and you have a break from it, it's like, it's like getting back on a bike. You remember. And essentially I did. Um, but the, the panic part was um, 
I mean, it was different than what I had experienced before, but it didn't really matter because the things that I did to help my panic earlier are, are the things that came up to help me in the moment. So, um, so in my head, I'm listening to what I'm being told and I'm following the directions of the instructor that was with me and my daughter. And, and the other part of my brain is going, okay, calm down, calm down, calm down. Um, and so I'm, I forgot how loud it is to breathe through the regulator underwater. Um, so that actually kind of surprised me. Um, but I was able to breathe. It was like, I'm feeling okay. And then we started going down and we're going down and my ears aren't clearing, which now I'm starting to have some pain in my ears because they're not, they're not popping. They're not clearing. So I'm having pressure build up. And so again, then it's like that triggered the panic and I'm like, oh my God, my ears, my ears, my ears. And so I'm doing those things that they tell you to do. Um, and again, it's like the instructor reminded me of it, but it was something that I remembered from before. So I, I knew. Um, and so <clears throat> I'm clearing my ears and the instructor was really great. So he, if, if I, I was able to signal a problem and point at my ear and then he brought me up just a little bit. And then, you know, I did like the, um, holding my nose and blowing. So trying to pop the, the ear pressure. And then it would clear, we go down, and I, I had to do that several times. And we were going down, I, I'm not exactly sure, I think about 30 feet or so um, initially. And, um, and then the last little bit, I had some pain in my ear, in, in one ear, um, when we got down to the, the very bottom, because we got to the bottom of this area they had set up, and then we were holding on to a bar, and then they were taking pictures. Um, and then we, and and then that allowed me, that time there allowed my ears to clear a little bit more, and so then we went out, and, you know, he took us out further into the reef and down a little deeper, and, um, and it took a little bit of time before I actually started to relax. Um, but it, I was like, you know, had, I was like holding onto this guy's arm really tight. And I think he realized, I think he knew when I relaxed because I relaxed my grip. So it was pretty clear that I was finally relaxed and I was really enjoying being down into the water and seeing all the fish and um, saw a couple sea turtles and, you know, it was just, it was so amazing. It was so beautiful. And it was something that I did with my daughter, um, who I might add, even though it was her first time, was not nearly as terrified as I was. So um, it, but it was, it was an amazing experience. And it's like all the things that I had experienced before helped me get through this. Um, and so it was, I think, like, it kind of incorporated all the things that you really need um, for resilience. Um, all the, the, um, the factors, I, I mean, you could think about, um, well, like risk and resilience factors for anything. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's not just about like what your body does, 
Um, I mean, you can have resilience of body, um, but you have um, like your relationships. Well, so let me, I'll, I'll talk about like the bio, let's just go back to the biopsychosocial spiritual model. Um, you know, so biologically, it's about like the, um, you know, how, how you take care of your body. Um, it's, and this is kind of aspects, well, I'll, co- I'll come back to some of this, like what you can do with this stuff. But if you think about biology, it's about your body and your body's response. And um, and so in in this situation with diving, um, you know, it's like my panic response. I was breathing harder and faster. My heart rate increased. Um, my muscle tension increased. Uh, and then I had the the pain factor because of my ear. Now, um, you know, this is what I felt in my body, and my previous experience told me that I can experience these things and I can do something about it. And so like that, taking a deep breath, um, it helps a lot. And I had, I had Andrew Huberman's voice in my head. Um, and it, because there's a certain way of breathing that I couldn't breathe through my nose, but I could still like breathe in through my mouth and then I could do a long exhale. Um, so I could breathe in and another, you know, fill my lungs and then do another little sip of air and then breathe out. And, and that's what uh, Huberman talks about um, in his episode, uh, his podcast about uh, managing stress. So that is a breath technique that he calls a sighing breath, and it stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system. So it stimulates the system that you need to help your body relax. So, um, so that the biological aspect um, was something that it's like I experienced something similar and, and I've experienced responses like that in many occasions. And, um, and I've always had something I could do to help. And sometimes like I've had panic attacks before um, and I know many people have had them, um, and it can be really disconcerting. Um, and sometimes you can do all the techniques you know, and you still have that that sense, that that sense of your heart pounding out of your chest. And and it's like everything that you do seems to not really work. And so then you're left with kind of writing it out. And, and then it comes down to like how you think about that. And, and it's like when I've had panic attacks where I haven't been able to breathe and relax, um, I just know it will pass. I know it won't go on forever and that it will end. And so then it just becomes about the psychological. It's the understanding that um, it will end. I know it will end. I just don't know when. Um, it, fortunately, panic attacks don't usually last that long. So, but I think the longest one I've ever experienced is about two hours. And um, and I kept trying to breathe and, you know, to, to relax and do progressive muscle relaxation and do visualization, to do, you know, different breathing techniques. And... Um, for whatever reason, it just wouldn't go away. I mean, I don't even remember being in a particularly stressful situation um, 
at that time or or even like previous or having anything coming up that was particularly stressful, which is kind of the nature of panic attacks. Um, so uh, basically I had to write it out and it was the psych psychology part of it that allowed me to do that because I knew it wouldn't last forever. So, and that's really where your mindset comes in. Um, it's knowing that you can tolerate that discomfort, You that you can um, write out that discomfort. Um, sometimes, um, like in psychology and dealing with addiction, um, they'll use a term for, like, writing out the craving as, like, riding the wave. Um, so, you know, anybody who has had an addiction issue with any substance knows that, you know, the worst part is, like, when you have that craving for it, and that can be triggered in all sorts of ways. Um, and so it comes on, and then it increases and increases, and it will plateau, and then it kind of comes down. Um, and, it, and it will come down a lot faster than it comes on. And so it's a lot like surfing the wave. Um, so, and that that's a psychological uh, technique and understanding is knowing that these things will end. Um, and then, um, and then recognizing that I feel panic, you know, so it's like I didn't try and push that away or ignore that. I recognized it. I faced it. Um, and I think that that was something um, that was, I mean, and this is something that people can do, like, on purpose. <laughs> uh, but, you know, facing things that you know scare you. Um, facing facing that fear, facing that emotion you don't want to experience, um, it actually gives you um, more power over whatever is going on in that moment. And um, and as it relates to mindset, sometimes that thought process, that way of thinking, can have an effect physiologically, which is just kind of mind blowing. Um, and so there's like, um, uh, I'll probably, I don't remember when the research was done, but I mean, I think a good example of this is um, like food, food that you eat, for instance. It's like what you believe is in that food affects how your body actually responds to it. Um, and I'm not even going to embarrass myself by trying to remember the hormone names, but there's one hormone that's produced that um, promotes feeding, and then there's another hormone that is produced that promotes, um, uh, I'm not even going to say the word, but feeling full. Um, and there's a different word for that, but I always butcher it, so... Anyway, so you have these two hormones, and so, um, you know, what you eat influences which one is um, released. And so there's a, an experiment on, um, uh, it basically was like milkshakes. So they had a sample of people, and they had this milkshake where they told one group that it was a diet shake, and it was good for you, and, uh, and it had like, 300 calories or whatever, and then they had this other shake that was like full fat and 
600 calories and really rich, you know, so it was like, so they, they had these shakes that they described differently to the groups of people. And, um, and of course, they have a control that just gets a shake and they know exactly what it is. <laughs> but um, it was the same shake in each case. There was no difference. Um, and so you would think that, well, a person, how a person thought about that, I mean, obviously it would be different. A lot of times when we're given something and somebody says it's good for you, then it's like, oh, this isn't going to be good. We're expecting it not to be good. And and this wasn't so much about, like, what you might uh, think about the flavor of that shake, but it, it was true is that the group that was told that it was good for you um, didn't find it as – uh, like mentally, men- mentally, psychologically, it wasn't as appealing, but they drank it. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that each one um, stimulated different um, uh, hunger, fullness hormones. So um, the one that the group that was told that it was a full fat, rich shake actually released the hormone that told them that they were full and satisfied. And the group that was told that it was, um, a, you know, a diet, low-calorie, good-for-you shake, um, the hormone that told them to eat, um, that increased. And, um, and it, was, it was based on what they believed um, because the shakes were exactly the same. There was no difference. So what you think about something, so your mindset about it, can influence your physiology and how it reacts and behaves. Um, so that's uh, so that idea that you can face something that is fear-provoking um, or, or um, anxious-provoking or sad-provoking or whatever it is, and know that you can handle it has an effect on how your body will react to it. Um, and so, you know, your body's going to do what it does. When you're in a panic state, when you're faced with a life-threatening situation, like, you know, diving, um, which it couldn't have been safer, honestly, um, but your body reacts to it. And so thinking about, I got this, I can do this, I've done this before, I know what this feels like, um, all those thoughts, I can endure this. It's not going to last forever. All those kinds of thoughts um, help to um, lower the, the, the potential stress response that you will have. So, yes, I still had a stress response because it was a stressful situation um, and, and something I was out of practice. But it, it could have been worse. Like I said, I was, like, in a panic in the beginning, and when my ears wouldn't clear, I almost – said, I'm done, I quit, um, but I'm kind of stubborn, and so I'm like, I'm going to keep going, and hopefully I'm not going to push so much that I burst an eardrum. Um, I didn't, though. I don't like pain, so uh, anyway, so um, so that thought process, and then um, and then how, how you cope, cope with it, that's part of the psychology, too, so, you know, my way of coping with it was to um, kind of use that kind of cognitive behavioral aspect where I'm talking to myself about, I know this, I've done this, um, it's not going to last forever. So, I mean, I was 
using um, realistic thoughts because the panic thoughts are, I'm going to burst in your drum, I'm going to drown, worst case scenario. Um, and those are not helpful at all. And so I recognized these, you know, kind of irrational thoughts and, and knew where it was coming from and, um, and was able to replace those thoughts with things that were more helpful. So it's like, yes, it was uncomfortable at times. Um, and yes, it was scary at times, but I knew that that wasn't going to last. And I knew that I had some control and I knew that I had air, which is like my son-in-law said, just remember as long as you got the regulator in your mouth, you have air and nothing else matters. And I actually thought that like his voice came through my head and I'm like, it's okay. I got air. Um, and there are several times I found myself looking up at the surface thinking, okay, it's not that far up there. I could do it. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, but I had that, so that psychology piece, um, that came into play. It was really strong. And that psychology piece also plays into how the body reacts as well. Um, and then the social piece. And this was a really important aspect, too. And this is something I don't think people think of regularly when they think about resilience. Um, because we often think of resilience as being this really personal thing. And, and it is in some ways, but it's also very much tied to our support and our relationships. And, um, and this is something I've talked about over and over and over again is that having support of others is crucial. Um, when somebody is struggling with PTSD or depression or anxiety or, or any other like um, mental health issue or even physical issues sometimes, there's a tendency to withdraw. And, and it's like that's, that's not helpful for resilience because resilience really – depends on social aspects as well. And, and that's why, you know, we think of like um, risk and resiliency factors. It's a resiliency factor to have a supportive family, to have friends, to have coworkers. Um, I think that's one of the big draws to the fire service is because, um, because it's a family. It's, you know, like your crew, they have your back. Um, and anything you can do that helps to build that is is really important for the, the resiliency of the organization. And when that starts to break down, which it does sometimes, then then there are problems. And, and that can then become a risk factor and that can start to threaten um, resiliency in those circumstances. And, and you know, I've heard stories uh, from fire departments around the country that um, there have been issues where they haven't felt supported either by the administration or by their crew or, you know, whoever. And, um, and that takes a toll. So having support is important. And in this case where I was diving and I was kind of, you know, struggling with my own panic and then my ear um, and the thoughts going through my head of like, I, I'm just going to quit. I can't do this. Um, 
you know, it's like another big component of being able to overcome that situation was I was down there with my daughter. And that social connection was huge in that moment. And then, you know, I'm down there with someone who started out as a stranger who I feel like it was my best bud at the end of all this, um, you know, the instructor, he was amazing. And he was so, um, he was so understanding and gentle. And it just, I mean, he could have done any number of things that would have like made me go, that's it, I'm done. But he didn't. Um, he was like incredibly patient and supportive. And then my daughter was there and she was doing it. And I looked at her and I could see that she was smiling. I mean, it, I mean, you know, like her eyes definitely, because they told us not to smile underwater, um, which I can tell you is if you smile with a regulator in your mouth, you get water in your mouth. So I totally understand that. Um, but she was really enjoying it. And so that social piece really meant a lot. Um, and and if, you know, it's one of those things, like if that was missing, maybe the other stuff I was experiencing would have made me quit. Um, and then the spiritual piece. Um, you know, I consider myself a spiritual person. And um, when I finally was able to relax, I was just kind of in awe of what I saw. Um, and just a variety of things. And just, you know, so like the just the, the nature, the connectedness, the you know, ability to be down there and to see it. Um, we had a couple of sea turtles swim at us. <laughs> and uh, we were told we can't touch them, but it's okay if they touch us. <laughs> so my daughters, I'm pretty sure one of them brushed up against me. Um, but, you know, it was, it was just, it was awe-inspiring, and I think that that's, like, for me, um, you know, spirituality can mean a lot of different things, but I think it's, like, being able to experience that awe. Um, to me, that is a real spiritual-type experience. So, um, so all those factors were present, and all those factors helped me overcome the panic and the doubt. Um, and um, and then all my experiences before and the tools that I had available to me, um, you know, it's like those those experiences, like you don't forget. You may not think about them often, but they come up in the moment, you know. So it was like the breathing. Like I I have told the story about my face mask filling up with water before and how. Um, I needed, you know, that that created a lot of um, anxiety and that I would have to take a deep breath to calm down before I could clear my mask and then I would just be calm. Um, I've told that story before, but it's not something I talk about often. And so it wasn't, it wasn't in the forefront of my mind, not even, you know, at the beginning of doing this dive, it was just kind of like, okay, well, I know the process. Um, but it wasn't until I was in the water that, um, and I was feeling that panic come up that I took a deep breath. So it's like my body knew what to do. Um, you know, so the whole idea um, of like, you know, training, learning and training, you know, train like you fight, fight like you train, um, that allows you to do in the moments that you 
still may be um, an increase, and in, in maybe it's not panic, but, but you have your stress response triggered and it's heightened. Um, so it, and that knowing that you can take a breath and bring things under control goes a long way. So, and that's part of, um, like, that's part of, like, the, um, the special forces training, for instance, the Navy SEAL training. So, this is something when I first talked about resilience, I dismissed the physiological aspect of it. And, um, it, and that was something that, to me, seemed really emphasized with the, the special forces training, particularly, like, with the Navy SEALs and what they go through. Um, and the um, just the the experience that their you know their body is put through, um, and just like that, like they learn to. I, I mean, it's like I guess I didn't really understand it, <laughs> really, because I thought, well, yeah, they learn to be uncomfortable, and they just push through it. And I I didn't see how that was resilient at that time. Um, but as I started to learn more and, you know, I got into more of like neuroscience, um, I started to realize like you can't separate out, um, the body's experience from the other experiences, the, the psychological experience, um, or the social experience. So all the things that I talked about with my dive, with my daughter, um, those are things that essentially you know, Navy SEALs go through, except obviously a lot more, a lot more. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're, they're putting their body through extremes that's creating, you know, our natural flight, flight response, um, you know, I mean, because they truly are being put in situations where they are, um, like, experiencing, like, near drowning. Um, but they have to keep it together. If they want to pass, then they, they have to have tools. Um, and it means that they have to believe that they could get through it. So it clearly means that that psychological piece is there. But the thing is, is that they get through it, and then it's like they may or may not experience those circumstances later down the road in the course of their career. Um, but the fact is, if they do... Their body's going to react because that's what our body does. We have an innate drive for survival, and that's where our fight-flight response comes from. And so the body reacts, and you don't have control over that initial reaction. You do have control over what comes next and how big that reaction gets and how long that reaction lasts. And that's really what the, um, the Navy SEAL training is. Um, that's that stress inoculation training. Um, that was my my lessons for um, you know getting certified to dive early on. That's what that was, and that all came up when I dove this last time. Um, and just as it does for you know any special forces group that undergoes any of that training, um, and so it it helps it's like it becomes like familiar so your body reacts and it it gets thrown into the fight flight and that's familiar you know what that feels like but then you know 
because you've experienced before that you can tolerate it, that you can get through it. And, um, and that's a big aspect of this. So you have all this physiological stuff, but you know that you can tolerate it. That's the psychology. And you know that there are things that you can do that will help bring that down a bit so you can operate with your whole brain instead of your lizard brain. And I think that that's, that's a big um, aspect of this is that we have this stress reaction so that we can perform optimally. So we can, so we can overcome and learn from that experience. As soon as you go over that threshold, whatever that threshold is, because it could be different for different people, but as soon as you go over that threshold, and you're no longer using your prefrontal cortex, but you're in your, your lizard brain, the, um, you know, the amygdala, um, the limbic system, basically, um, or midbrain, um, then you've lost the ability to learn. And, um, and that's when I, I believe, and from everything that I've read, is that that's where we start to have some problems with um, maybe um, post-traumatic symptoms or, or, you know, or where it might build up so much where then it develops into the PTSD. Um, it's normal to have post-traumatic symptoms after you've experienced something traumatic, regardless of what it is. Um, but it's like what you do with it that matters, and that's what resilience is about. Um, so it's the flexibility, and I think, you know, the training, the training tells you one way, and sometimes you learn a couple ways, but you train to be as perfect as you can be, and, and in the moment when you need your skills, it's okay if they're not perfect. Um, they're still adequate for getting the job done, whatever it is. Um, and so you're still able to perform. And then if you can keep your reaction, that, that stress reaction, from overwhelming you, then, then you really get to be more, like you could really start to think outside the box. So that idea of um, being flexible um, and bringing the, the mind in, that comes in early on in resilience. Um, it isn't enough to just experience something and just feel it. It's, it's, you're starting that process of like, okay, well, what do I do with this? And so um, if you are able to think outside the box, then you're, you're still using your prefrontal cortex. So you're relying on what you learned and how you trained. But if it is something that is similar but not quite what you trained for, then you start thinking outside the box. And as long as you are keeping engaged in your, with your prefrontal cortex, no problem. Um, and, then, and then all that kind of, then you learn. You know, your, your body is going to learn. Um, so the, the body, the physiology, like the body learns. And that's one of the things, like there's this great book about um, traumatic stress, and it's called The Body Keeps the Score. 
So even if your brain forgets, your mind forgets, your body still remembers. And so it's like sometimes people will go somewhere and their body will react and they have, they don't know why. Um, and, and it, and it's because like something in that environment triggered a memory, but the only thing that they have access to is what's in their body. And so, um, so the, the body keeps the score, the body remembers, and it's the, it's the last place that remembers. So um, anybody who's done therapy, if you do, you know, traditional talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, narrative therapy, whatever it is, it's like you, you're dealing with, you know, how you think about what happened to you. Um, and, and so you will feel better. Um, but it doesn't always get to the body level. And so that's something that really takes some people by surprise is where when they think they've got it handled, but then their body responds to something in a big way. And they're like, oh, my God, where did this come from? And, um, and it kind of sends them in a panic. So they're almost like panicked. I mean, it's the body responds, which it, it will. Um, unless you do something that specifically targets the body, it, it will remember and it will respond. Um, and and so it's like people don't really think about that or understand it. And so then that can kind of send them into a panic. And so it's like how they're thinking about what they're feeling actually makes it worse. So it's not so much the body response, but it's like how they're thinking about it. That is the problem. Um, so it's, I use I often use a term of like, you know, people who have really struggled with anxiety. Um, I worked with a woman who had anxiety so bad that going to unfamiliar places caused her to have diarrhea. And um, and it was so bad that she like really started to constrict her road, her, her world. And, um, and so she would like her walk, she would go on walks, and she knew where every bathroom was. Um, she'd go to work. She knew where every bathroom was. Um, if she was going somewhere and she didn't know that place, then she would research it to find out where every bathroom was. Um, and that helped her feel like she was a bit more in control. She came to see me because um, a, a really close niece of hers was getting married in Ireland. And she really wanted to go. But the thought of her provoked so the thought of going provoked so much anxiety that it actually caused her to have diarrhea and so it's like she was more it was the anxiety about the anxiety like just thinking about it and 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 knowing that she had this anxiety and what it did she became anxious about becoming anxious um and that's often what happens and what gets in the way of of people being, well, of being resilient, really. Um, and because it's like, then it's like your body does all sorts of weird things. Well, not so weird. I mean, basically it's part of your stress response and, um, and, and you don't really have control over it at that point. So um, it, it's almost like when something happens and you don't understand it, and it takes you by surprise. 
it's really the surprise about that happening that is the worst part, I think. Um, and so that can happen when the body remembers. So you can work on things psychologically, and you could feel a lot better because of that, but um, the body sometimes will react regardless. Um, maybe not as big as it would have had you not done the work around it, but doing the work around whatever experience you had and the psychology piece of it, um, it can sometimes affect people detrimentally because then when their body reacts, they are really taken by surprise and, and they don't, you know, they, they're kind of thinking about mind and body as being separate versus like this constant interaction and feedback. Um, so, you know, it's, it's like it may be not as bad as it could have been, but the body's still reacting. So that's one of the things, like there's a lot of um, research that looks at body work um, and it's an aspect of like EMDR, so eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is um, one of the uh, preferred treatments for like trauma. And so for that, like one of the phases of that, so there's eight phases, um, and it takes you through like the first three is kind of like laying the groundwork and um, creating resources and cre creating targets and so forth. And then it goes into the desensitization and reprocessing um, without, you know, having to tell your story um, completely. So, like, the idea is that you you don't have to relive it. Um, it, you know, so you can say nothing or you say very little. Um, but your your brain is processing it. So and that's usually when you get the bilateral eye movement. Or it could be bilateral audio stimulation. Um and um or even tactile. Um that can work as well. So it's it's basically like some sort of bilateral stimulation. Um <clears throat> so so you get through the first parts where you're um reprocessing and de desensitizing and reprocessing. Um, so, you know, emotions come up and you acknowledge it, but then you just keep going on with the bilateral stimulation. Um, and eventually things don't feel the same way. Like it doesn't feel so bad. The memory feels more distant. Um, some descriptions I've heard is, well, my body, or it's like, I don't feel that tightness anymore. Um, I feel more relaxed or, um, or, like the picture is fuzzy, it's faded, it's become black and white, so it's not vivid anymore. Um, you know, so it's like the memory's still there, but it's not, it's, it's been, um, I mean, the purpose of it is to kind of, I like to say it kind of helps you get out of your own way so that the brain can sort it out and file it away the way it's supposed to be. Um, and then it becomes you know, something that then is more adaptive um, and it becomes one of your past experiences that helps to inform the future experiences, but in a more adaptive way and not maladaptive, and, which is what usually brings people into therapy. Um, but the next step after that is a body scan. And so um, I will walk people through like a head to toe scan and 
and to ask them to tell me any um, any um, felt sensations that they might have, good or bad, you know, pleasant or unpleasant. And um, sometimes people will notice that they have some tension a certain, in certain places in their body or, um, well, most often it's because they have tension. So I don't think I've ever done that yet initially where somebody said, oh, I feel great. <laughs> I feel relaxed. Um, usually they have tension still. And so then we process that. And so EMDR processes what is held in the body. So that helps to deal with um, any of the body memories. Um, and then and then we do a future template, which helps to create um, that learning and adapting. Um, so, you know, that's that process. Um, and so it helps with helps with building resilience. I mean, if you think about the, you know, being flexible and learning and adapting um, that process of being resilient and what it means to be resilient, um, EMDR kind of taps into each one of those things along the way. Um, there's other body work that people do. Um, I've talked to massage therapists that have said that, you know, they worked on uh, first responders and they'll be doing a massage and they will like get to a certain part and then all of a sudden they're crying. Um, the first responder, not the therapist. Um, and and most of the time the um, I, well, it's like it, it could be an experienced therapist, but if they're inexperienced, they're working with first responders, then the, the massage therapist could be taken by surprise. Um, but it's not unusual to have body work done and to have these really strong emotions uh, release. And, and a lot of times those strong emotions come out as tears. Um, there's a... What is it called? Um, so there's a, uh, a body work technique that's called, um, it's, uh, I think a massage therapist can do it. And um, I can think of it as counter strain. And there's a counter strain technique or counter strain massage. Um, it, or it's a fascial counter strain. Um, that has, there's actually some research that they've done recently that um, that was specifically done on first responders that showed that it helped a lot with trauma. And I've recommended a couple people that I've worked with to go have that work done. And they said it was phenomenal and it really helped. And these were people that carried their trauma in their body still. Um, they were really struggling with tight muscles um, and pain and so forth, um, which backing up a little bit, that is something else like with EMDR is like sometimes you can go through it and, and end up being pain-free after. And I know that that was my experience when I was learning it. We had to, you know, practice on each other. And I was three days post-surgery on my shoulder and, um, and actually debating like not going and postponing the class because um, I was, you know, the third day after having um, a pretty significant shoulder surgery and uh, obviously a lot of pain. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but it, I decided, nope, it was going to set me back too much. I was going to go, and I could do it because one is I knew I could endure it. Um, as much as I didn't want to experience that, I knew I could do it, um, that I could tolerate it, um, not like I enjoy pain. Um, but when we did the practice, I worked on an issue, which is funny because I thought it was something that was resolved, and apparently it wasn't. Um, but I worked on an issue I thought was no big issue. Um, but at the end of it, um, I didn't have any pain, I, no pain. And, um, and I went home, and I'm like, honey, let's go out to dinner. I feel great. Um, because believe me, I was dragging when I went. I hadn't slept well. I had a lot of pain. And I came home and I was energized and um, had no pain. And then that night I slept amazing. Of course, I woke up stiff and sore the next day. But anyway, but that, like, for every class, it was like four days. And so every day I did it, I ended up, like, coming home and having no pain. So it was amazing. So it took me a week out. Um, to the point where I didn't need I didn't need painkillers, um, nothing stronger than maybe an occasional Tylenol or ibuprofen. So um, so it was amazing. Uh, so um, and I didn't have any I, any preconceived notion about like oh EMDR is going to take care of my pain, but that also is another area of research that they've looked at, and that is that. Um, they actually do target pain with the EMDR, and it has been shown to be beneficial. Um, so anyway, but that, you know, it's that, it's just that understanding of how our body remembers the traumas um, and how we experience that in our body. And so um, knowing that you're body has these reactions, knowing that you can endure it and you can actually do something about it is a big part of resilience. So um, now that I've like said all these things, um, I'm going to tell you some things that you can do. Um, what I found is that most fire, most people go into the fire service and they're resilient. And um, and I know that there's a lot of research out there where they've looked at um, the prevalence of um, PTSD symptoms, um, which then is extrapolated into, well, then you must have PTSD. Um, but there's a variation in, in that percentage. And some research has shown that it actually is low, whereas other research has shown that it is really high. So it can go anywhere from, I think, I think the lowest I saw was like 4% to the highest was um, 40-some percent. And, and in each case, they always stipulate that oh, it's probably higher um, because, you know, people don't always want to talk about it um, or acknowledge it. And that could be true. But the fact is there's, there's variation there, and the variation really comes from the measures that they use and the symptoms that they're looking at and identifying. So it's not that they're looking at the prevalence of PTSD, but they're looking at the prevalence of um, post-traumatic stress symptoms. And the fact is, is that it's normal to have a lot of the symptoms that people experience um, after they've had a traumatic incident. Um, and, and that's something that, um, 
it's like knowing that can actually help a lot. Um, so there, there you go. It's another mindset thing. Um, so it's like how you think about it. Um, and it doesn't mean that you think, oh, wow, that was, that was great. Glad I went through that experience. It's like, no, you could still say that experience sucked. Um, but um, you're acknowledging it and you're facing it. And then you're telling yourself, and I, and I got through it and I'm okay and I can be okay. Um, that really is like, the important aspect of it. Um, so, what can you do about this? Well, there are a number of things that um, people can do, like physiologically, to help themselves tolerate stress better. Um, you know, like one is the the training. Um, you know, so that that's a given. You know, if you go through any academy, they're going to put you in as stressful experiences as they can, um, so that you're getting that heightened state you're getting that stress response and then you're doing you're doing the tasks that you're supposed to be doing so um that's done because there's a recognition that you're going to be going into stressful situations and potentially life-threatening situations um and so you need to be able to keep your head so if you know what you're doing then that's going to help um and then, um, you know, so that goes a long way, but it's not the only thing. So the other thing is like, you know, what other, what other ways do you stress yourself? Um, so there's been a lot of research on like cold exposure, for instance. Um, cold exposure stimulates your fight flight system. And so you can do that and then you can, and then you're like, okay, well, <laughs> My, my body is tensing up, my heart rate is racing, my breathing is like faster and more shallow. And so you get all those experiences that go along with the stress response without being in a life-threatening situation. And so then you're able to then experience that and learn to tolerate it and, um, and to think about it in a, a different way. Um, and so it's, so it's, you know, kind of like a form of like what they do with stress inoculation training. Um, the other thing is you can do what scares you. So, and that was like, that's kind of like a, a phrase that has stuck in my head is do what scares you. That essentially is what I did. Um, I went to Australia. <laughs> that scared me um, because I'm I've kind of become a homebody. Like I like to talk about like all these adventures I want to have, but the reality is, is that it's actually kind of stress promoking. Um, and then, and then I, I did the scuba diving, um, you know, and I, I had the previous experience and, and the last experience I had diving was actually really scary. And, um, and I literally thought I was going to die. Um, and I still did it. So I did what scared me. Um, and there were, there were a lot of things that I did that, scared me. I like we went on a on a train, an old train on these tracks that were built along a cliff that the 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 tour guide kept saying, Oh, look at this waterfall over here. If you all go to the right, look at the waterfall and the train is literally tilting that way and it is a like drop down like you wouldn't believe. And I'm like, there's no surviving that. Um <laughs> that was kind of scary too. So anyway, so it's like, do what scares you. If there's something you want to do, 
and you're holding back because you're afraid. And I know firefighters don't like to admit they're afraid of anything, but you don't have to publicly say you're afraid of it. Just acknowledge it to yourself at the very least and then do it and, and do it with someone. Do it with somebody that you are connected to and trust and care about. So do it with someone. Um, do the, um, so breathing. So another, another thing like breathing, I talked about the physiological side. So um, some of you may have heard about, um, well, my, 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 my brain just went blank. Um, uh, God, it's on the tip of my tongue. Um, he does a um, hyperventilation uh, technique, breathing technique, Wim Hof, <laughs> Wim Hof. So the Wim Hof method of breathing is essentially hyperventilating. And, um, and I've done that before, and it does provoke a sense of panic. Um, because you're breathing fast and um, and you'll get lightheaded. I mean, just think about people having a panic attack and what that's like. You know, you get the lightheadedness, you um, start to feel numbness and tingling around your mouth, maybe in your hand. And, um, and so basically Wim Hof's breathing technique, that's what it does. Um, and then you hold your breath. And it's amazing because you can hold your breath for a long time afterwards, which like just blew me away. Um, but so that particular breathing technique, and there's another one. Um, there, there are a number of breathing techniques that can kind of stimulate that um, response. So that basically stimulates your sympathetic nervous system, which is actually a good thing um, because one is you can use that to stimulate your system and experience what that feel, feels like. And then you can do like the physiological side to like bring your system back down. Um, but being able to tolerate that is like part of that stress inoculation. Um, and knowing that you can, it's like, I can do this, I can tolerate it. Um, there are times you might want to do that particular type of breathing because you need to be more awake and more alert because that's one of the things that our stress response does is it makes us more alert and, um, and more like it makes our vision more like we have better, um, uh, better vision, uh, visual acuity. That's the term I was looking for. Um, it, it gets, blood pump to our, our to our muscles, our big muscles, so that we can react. Um, so it gets us ready. So you can actually do that technique if you need to be alert to learn something, for instance, um, or if you're finding that you're kind of in a slump and, and you can't take a nap or do yoga nidra, um, which is non-sleep deep rest, which is a great way to recharge. Um, and feel rested. Um, but if you can't do that, then you can do the Wim Hof breathing for a minute or two minutes, and that makes you feel more alert and um, ready to go. And that's because it stimulates the sympathetic nervous system. So you can stimulate your system. Um, you can do it. So you can have control over it. And, um, and then you can also stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system. So using the physiological side, it's the 
quickest, easiest way to do that. And then when you know that you can control these two systems, that you're not at the whim of these systems, um, that helps you when you're facing any stressor that stimulates your fight-flight system because you know what it feels like and you know you have some control over it. Um, and, and that is that psychological piece. So you can kind of prime your body to help. Now, if you're already on the other side of your stress response where you're like really tired, really fatigued, then um, you might not want to be stimulating your system so much. You might want to be more focused on relaxation, on mindfulness, on you know, breathing, um, uh, working out, eating well. So, I mean, so good nutrition, so how you take care of yourself getting sleep as much as you can, using um, some form of non-sleep deep rest in place of naps. Um, you know, a lot of people say, like, after they get off their shift, they go home and they sleep for two hours. Um, you know, one is, if you're sleeping two hours, then you're not in line with your um, natural rhythm. So sleep is, gener is consistently, according to the research, consistently, it takes... 90 minutes to get through um, a full cycle of sleep. So going, you know, from your light sleep into your deep sleep through your REM sleep and then back up to light sleep. And so that's 90 minutes. And so in order to feel the best, you want to either avoid getting into the deep sleep, the, the really deep sleep, um, or you want to complete that whole cycle. So that means you want to nap like 20 to 30 minutes or 90, um, or a three, but then if you sleep too much, then you're gonna interfere in your ability to sleep at night, um, among other things. So, so using uh, not sleep deep breaths, like yoga nidra, and you can look it up. Um, there are a lot of people who will do it and walk you through it, and it really is amazing. You can do 30 minutes of yoga nidra and feel recharged and refreshed. And if you don't do it late in the day, like, you know, typically you're doing these things before 4 o'clock, then you'll be ready to go to bed and go to sleep. And you can even use it at night. So if you have trouble sleeping at night, rather than getting anxious about not sleeping when you know you need to sleep, you can do yoga nidra. And there, you know, there are longer forms, like an hour to two hours, um, or you can do the one-hour one and just do it repeatedly. Um, and basically, you're getting benefit from that. You're getting rest from that. Um, it's not sleep, but it's, it, it still helps. It still helps, you, helps refresh you, and, um, and it helps. So then you're not worrying about, I'm not getting enough sleep, because you're still getting some form of rest. Um, and so, like, having these tools is really helpful. Um, so anything that you can do to help your your body, your your physiology, and of course exercise. I don't want to leave off exercise. So um, exercise is also something that we generally look at as a resilience factor and the benefits of exercise. But if you're overstressed, then doing a hard exercise 
isn't necessarily helpful. So it's like listen to your body and do a form of exercise that is in line with where your body's at. So if you feel like you have energy to burn, then do that hard workout. If you feel like you are, like you've been drugged through the ringer, then go out for a walk and um, and then just breathe and take in nature. Um, so there's a number of things that you can do. Um, just, you know, like move a little. Um, go Go for a massage. Do that body work. So it's like take care of the body, take care of the physiology, and know you have some control. And then psychologically, think about what your mindset is. And um, and are you consistently thinking that you will be stronger because of what you're experiencing? Or is it like sometimes you feel that way? <laughs> or are you worried about too much stress and that stress will make you sick? Um, because if, if that's the case, then you want to work on your mindset. You want to shift that mindset to where you're looking at things. It's like, realistically, it's like, yeah, things suck. And they can suck and they can feel bad and you could hate going through it and not want to experience. That's okay. Um, but knowing that you can learn from it, you can tolerate, you can learn from it, you can adapt. <laughs> um knowing that it will end, you know, that type of mindset goes a long, long way and is um, a really strong resilient factor. Um, knowing that you have a variety of tools that you can deal with it. Um, so I talked about like, um, so the physiology, so like around mindset, one of the tools that I really like is um, it's through Stanford University, and I've mentioned it before. It's um, Aaliyah Klum, and it is um, my, uh, the Mind Body Lab. Um, and she has an exercise on there um, that is about changing or shifting your mindset. Um, and so, um, I was just bringing her up and looking. Um, so they have like, it's rethinking. So it's a rethink stress intervention. And it's a really good um, tool. I mean, it doesn't have to, it's not just an intervention. I mean, if it helps you like shift how you think about stress, um, so you're changing your mindset and that, that psychology piece, then that is... Um, that's perfect. It will help with that. But it's a really good tool for, like, processing things. Um, you know, a lot of times I get asked the question, you know, like, what do I do with what I see and do at work and not take it home? Well, this is just doing um, the first part of this um, rethinking stress um, exercise is really helpful um, because it shifts it from the amygdala area to the prefrontal cortex. And as soon as you do that, then it allows the brain to, you know, kind of to process it appropriately and to store it away so it is more useful to you. Um, so um, you can actually go to the Stanford Mind-Body Lab. You can find Rethinking Stress Intervention. And then there is a... Um, uh, there is a link to get the, well, 
honestly, I would go through the program. It's about an hour long. Um, it has short videos, explains a lot. Um, so I would recommend doing it because um, it's an investment in you. But then it has like kind of like a, a workbook that goes with it, <laughs> if you will. And it, um, it asks you, you know, some specific questions that kind of guides you. So if you do like the three steps is for rethinking stress is um, acknowledging it, welcoming it, and utilizing it. And so if you do the first step of acknowledging it, that's, that's where it, it puts it in, where it belongs in the prefrontal cortex. Um, and then the second one is welcoming it. And, um, and that, that basically is recognizing that I can learn from this and I can use it. And utilizing it is like where you're using that experience. And we are a culmination of our experiences. Um, so the mind-body lab, rethink stress intervention. So I highly recommend that. Um, for the social aspect, um, get out and be with people. Um, be with people. Be with your people. <laughs> um, recognize when you're isolating um, and try not to isolate. And there is a time where being alone is okay, but not if that is happening all the time. You don't want to be alone. Um, so allow yourself to be with someone and you don't have to you don't have to talk um it's like you can just do things do things alongside each other so if you're married or living with a partner it's like you don't have to talk about whatever's bothering you if you don't want to but but be with them recognize that you have this thing that you're trying to deal with that you're overwhelmed by um and you could convey that to them but then just be. You could say, I can't really talk about it right now, um, but I would really like to like just sit and watch TV with you, or I would really like to do this project, and I would like you to be with me. Not, you don't have to help me. I just want to be in the vicinity, um, and that that can be really helpful. Um, do scary things. <laughs> do scary things. If there's something you want to do, and you're scared, and you're afraid then do it and do it with a friend. Do it with somebody you care about and trust. Um, I mean, there is a limitation to that. And um, one of the things that I use as a rule of thumb is if something excites you and it scares you, and it scares you, if it excites you and scares you, then that's something you should do. Don't let the fear hold you back from doing something that, is, that excites you. Because if you're excited, then you have a passion for that um, and an interest for that. Um, so you have to balance that out. Like, are you more excited and a little less scared? Or are you, like, really scared? Um, so you want to push yourself. And that's how we get better. It's how we get stronger. It's how we continue to build resilience. And that's what we want to do. And the spiritual aspect, it I think that that's worth asking yourself a question. Like, are you religious? Are you spiritual? How important are these things to you? Um, spirituality can mean a lot of different things. I mean, spirituality is the big umbrella, and it can encompass uh, organized religion, 
but it also is about connection to the world. Um, it can be about like experiencing awe of the the beauty that's out there. Um, so and and it's very personal to you. So you know, think about how that might play into things, um, and how how if you had it and lost it, or or whatever it is, like how does it inform you basically, and does it help you or does it hurt you? Um, so that basically is it. I mean, there's so many other things that we could talk about for resilience, but hopefully there is something there that you can use, that you can tap into, and and maybe you could think about your own resiliency and how resilient you really are. And my thought is that you're probably more resilient than you think you are right now. Um, because there's a lot more that goes into being resilient than what a lot of people usually think about. So, um, so take care of yourself and, um, and keep learning and adapting and do what scares you. So that is where I'm going to end. My, my wonderful dashboard person said, 90 minutes, that was like 10 minutes ago. So anyway, I think that that's more than enough. Um, you can always look up resiliency on the internet and you can find a lot of the stuff that I talked about there. Um, Psych Psychology Today, the American Psychological Association, um, they have articles about resiliency and some of these steps. Um, Andrew Huberman, um, I talk about his podcast all the time. I, I love listening to him because he um, talks about the latest research, why, you know, what it is, why you should care, and how you use it. Um, there's a lot of things that I've taken from him, and I personally use myself. Um, the Stanford Mind-Body Lab, uh, look that up. Um, the Rethinking Stress, um, anything about mindset. Um, is really powerful. Um, and you can even look at like the Navy SEAL stress inoculation program. Um, there's, there's a lot of information there. So it's, it's like if you want to know more, then, you know, you can look to any one of those resources. Um, or you could always contact me. And um, you can do that by calling if you want. Um, and my number is 425-281-7977. You can call or text that number if you want. Um, that's my business number. Or you can email Beth at integrativemhw.com. And I'll say it one more time. Beth at integrativemhw.com. So that last part, MHW, is for mental health and wellness. So thank you for listening, and I hope you got something out of this that you can take away and use and that it helps you. So thank you all, and um, good night or good morning or wherever you are listening to this. Thank you.